How many of you know the sweetest sound on earth has got to be your own name spoken by a friend, not an adversary? In Bible days, a name indicated your character. The Hebrew word for name was shim, and it comes from a root word meaning to set a mark. So a child was named for something that marked him. When I had a few names, I thought about our kids, stubborn, rebellious, but I didn't name them that. When Hannah prayed and prayed for a child in her barrenness, and God answered her prayer, she named the son Samuel, which meant asked of God. See, the names had a character and meaning. Many times a name would be synonymous with fame or renown or heroism, like the name of David. God himself blessed the name of David in 2 Samuel. He said, I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I've made you a great name like the name of great men who are on the earth. Wow. Unfortunately, a name could also come to represent evil. I doubt anybody in this room or watching on live stream would name your daughter Jezebel or your son Ahab or Benedict Arnold. Uh, they're marred forever. In the Old Testament, God revealed his name to Moses as Jehovah or Yahweh. I am who I am. The name of Yahweh was so crucial in Hebrew worship that they recited it twice a day. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the first verse taught to Hebrew kids. Parents wanted the children to hear and confess the name of the Lord before they learned anything else in life. Now, in Isaiah 9, we see the five-fold name of Jesus Christ. One name couldn't contain him to describe his character. And these names were given 700 years before he was born. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, that's the incarnation, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called, here's those different names, Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These words clearly predicted that he would be physically birthed and become a man in the incarnation. And then furthermore, it said he would be a son given. So he was the pre-existent son of God, even before the carnation, incarnation, and would be given as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. Now, I remember a story from World War II about a man whose leg had to be amputated, and the doctor said, we're going to have to take your leg. And the man said, no, sir, I'm giving my leg for my country. The perspective changed the whole situation. So Jesus made his perspective clear when he said, hey, no man is taking my life on this cross. I lay it down willingly. I mean, nobody could take anything from him unless he willingly gave it. And he willingly gave that life for you and me. The prophetic verse continues, the government will be upon his shoulders. So all authority would be granted to him. This son who was given would rise to become the regent of the universe. Not only does he have authority over the government of all creation, the planets and all the ages, but he can be Lord over every individual as well. Jesus wasn't going to come to take part in our lives. He was going to come to take over our lives. Who rules on the throne of your will? 
Every time we try to control our own lives, generally, we end up in a big mess. So I suggest, if you've tried everything and it hadn't worked, let Jesus have the government, the rule of your heart. His name is wonderful, those first of the five names. Isaiah tried within the limits of human language to relate the character of this coming king through five names. And that first one is wonderful. Isaiah begins his description with this word that comes from the Hebrew people, which refers to supernatural power, something that cannot be explained in terms of human planning. You know, having Jesus in your life means it becomes a life kind of filled with occasional wonder and surprise. In Luke 2, verse 18, we refine recorded the response of those who heard the shepherd's report about the birth of this baby Jesus. All those who heard it marveled at the things that were told them by the shepherds. What a display of marvel and wonder by all those touched by the news of this Messiah's birth. Remember, some of you old folks like me can remember that old hymn that said, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my soul shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful, my Savior's love for me. I'm old enough to remember that. <laughs> Notice Jesus is wonderful in his person. You know, it was just another wedding in Canaan until Jesus showed up and transformed that into the wedding of the century by turning H2O water into Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, we have a few intelligent people in here. Good, good. Yeah, enough of this grape juice stuff. I don't know where that came from. That, my friends the Baptists came up and reinvented that. But this is real... This is, there's two words for wine in the Bible, in the Hebrew, oinus and glucose. We get our word glucose from glucose. That's sugar water, grape juice. That's never used for wine. Oinus is used for wine. Now, certainly, if you've had a problem, abstinence would be the answer, complete abstinence. You can only be innocent once. But don't put my problem, my, my, my weakness, I can't put that on you because the abuse was the issue of Scripture. Don't get drunk. Right? Don't get drunk. That's all I said. So for all you Christmas partiers, don't get drunk. And don't drive. And use good sense. I mean, the Bible's got good common sense in it for crying out loud. I mean, we got this idea Jesus just shows up for nice, clean, pretty people. If you read the Bible, he shows up with nasty people in nasty places and for our New Year, I'm going to give 15 minutes of, of a little venting tomorrow night and give you a little taste about the mark of Jesus. He shows up with the nastiest people in the nastiest places. And we got all these little clean, pretty-looking, little perfume, corfute-haired kind of people running around in church. And I'm thinking, he's probably nowhere near that. He's always with people nobody wants or would reject. It's called grace, folks. That's what's wonderful about Jesus. It's called grace. So whatever he touches changes for the better. That's the idea, water to wine. Peter and the fishing pals thought they knew everything, had it all together, and they would have lived unknown, unremarkable lives until the day they went fishing with Jesus and they were never the same. And they watched their nets break under the miraculous catch of fish, although they had fished all night and caught nothing. And they looked at Jesus and exclaimed, wonderful, wonderful. Storms were common on the Sea of Galilee. But never was there a night like this one. 
even the seasoned veteran fishermen, and if you've ever watched Deadliest Catch, these are rough people. These disciples found themselves in a storm. The boat's about to capsize. They are afraid. And they woke up the master who was asleep, Jesus asleep in the back of the boat, and he stood up and said in English vernacular to the wind and the waves, shut up, peace be still. And it went smooth as glass. I don't know about you, but that set my hair on fire. These, these, these disciples in the boat said, what manner of man is this? See, they were in awe that even the waves and winds obeyed him. Jesus would take a common lily and make it as important as a king. He said in Matthew 6, Solomon, in all of his glory and all of his riches and all of his great clothes was never arrayed or dressed like one of my lilies. And he would point to an ordinary sparrow, that's a bird, and say, don't you wish you had that kind of freedom in your life? And he said, you can if you'll quit worrying and start trusting me. Jesus was wonderful in his person. He was also wonderful in his passion. Jesus was the only human being who ever lived who had the right not to die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but he didn't have any sin. So imagine when he willingly gave himself up to the cross. The rocks broke open, it said. The sun went dark. Tombs were open. Jesus bore the sin of the world in his own body. His arrival on earth was not about man seeking God. How stupid. It was God seeking man. You go all the way back to Genesis. He said, Adam, where are you? God wasn't looking for information and location. He was saying, Adam, you have really screwed up. Where are, dude, what are you thinking? Where are you in life? That's a good question to ask yourself today soberly. Where am I? What, what am I up to? Where am I going? What's going on in my life? God's always seeking. I hear people say occasionally, I found the Lord. I didn't know he was lost. I thought you were. You didn't find anybody. God finally captured you. See, God desired to make known his life to us, and he was willing to pay the price to make it happen. You know, years ago, the Hawaiian island of Molokai was not famous as a vacation tropical paradise. It was known for a leper colony. And a Catholic priest named Father Damien went to serve those leopards because nobody else was willing to take the risk of getting the disease. But because Christ's love called him there, he obeyed and he tended to the physical and spiritual needs of these suffering people. One day he spilled some boiling water on his foot and realized he couldn't feel it. And now he knew he had contracted this deadly disease. Later that day, as he rose to preach the daily chapel service, he began it by saying for the first time, my fellow lepers. In that moment, the lepers all realized that priest had identified with them, taking the disease on himself. And so you think of the Savior Jesus who identified with you from every background in this room, from every nationality and race and gender, and he took my sin on himself to save me. What a wonderful Savior. It says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. It's an exchange. He became what I am, worthless, sinful, so I could be called legally what he is, righteous. Now, I don't know if my wife would agree with it, but biblically, she has to agree with it. I'm righteous. That's a fact. That's what, it's a legal thing. It's not a, it's not a physical thing. It's a legal thing. 
He just went over to the record books and imputed to me, Ricky G. Righteous. And I show it to her occasionally. See that? And so are you if you accept Jesus. Not based on what I've done or achieved. Get out of that. See, it's, a, it's almost like a truck rolls off of you. You mean it's not based on my performance? Not at all. No, it's just an exchange. He just took my, my rags. He calls them filthy rags. And I took his robe of righteousness spiritually. When the father sees me, he just sees his son. He sees Jesus. I'm so glad. I'm sure I don't see anybody glowing in the dark in here. So I'm sure you feel the same relief I do. And then Jesus is wonderful in his presence. That wonderful Jesus can live personally in my life and yours. When Jesus comes in, a new, miraculous, supernatural, wonderful dimension comes on your life. You know, it, is, it occurs to me that occasionally, occasionally, not on demand, something supernatural ought to go on in your life. If we are gathered around a supernatural Savior, clothed in supernatural power, and walking in a supernatural name, my God, something supernatural ought to occur occasionally. Somebody gets well, somebody gets out of a mess, somebody gets dramatically changed. I mean, this ought to be occasionally in our lives something supernatural happening, right? I'm not going to just go up to some statue and leave bananas and burn a piece of incense and walk away with unchanged. I'm changed. I know when, I know where, I remember, and it's been a long journey of I'm still changing. Yeah, but I'm in, and I hope you feel the same way. The moment you invite Jesus into your life, you've got a forever friend. He will never leave you, never forsake you. People will. When people walk out, I'm telling you, he'll walk in. Secondly, not only is Jesus wonderful, here's the second characteristic. Isaiah says he is counselor. Counselor, Jeremiah 17, 9, says the heart is deceitful. But in Christ, I have a counselor who has all the wisdom of the world and can meet and help me with every problem I might have. Psalms 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Who is counseling you? Who's giving you advice? You know, if you've got a broke uncle, don't get financial advice from him. If your aunt's been married four times, don't get marriage advice from her. I, I, people, I marvel at it. I don't even think you have to be a Christian to be that smart to say, dude, it ain't working for you. I don't need your advice. But I want good counsel. And the Bible gives me good counsel and good wisdom. And in the multitude of counsel, there's safety. You know, talk about it with somebody with proven experience. Okay. There are a lot of voices out there seek to draw all of us away from the Lord's will. However, the Lord's wisdom and counsel is contained in 66 books of the Bible. He is author with the highest credentials, and every word he has written was composed to either correct me, comfort me, or encourage me. Psalms 119 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The entrance of your word gives light and understanding to the simple. Direct my steps, O Lord, by your word, and let no iniquity have dominion over me. You know, life is really simple when you boil it down to clear Scripture. If Scripture is clear on an issue, not vague, clear, you don't have to pray about it. Just do it. You just obey it. Now, if I don't know, and it's not clear, and there are plenty of things that are not totally clear, i got to pray about it and get some counsel. 
from Scripture, from, from wise people with proven experience. Does that make sense? But I'm just saying, if Scripture's clear, for God's sake, what do you mean by, I need to pray? You don't need to pray about it. When, when Joshua was losing a battle after they had taken Jericho and hadn't lost one man, nobody, no casualties, they sent a troop up to Ai, that, and they lost 36 men. And it was just a little village. You'd be like running up to, uh, what's a tiny little town up here? Kerrville, Bernie, Bernie somewhere. And they got knocked off. And old Joshua was on his face praying. And I love what God said, get up. Stop this nonsense praying. You couldn't, I told you you weren't going to lose a man. Somebody took something that wasn't theirs. Now find out who it is and get rid of them. And we'll get back to victory. See, I mean, even God says, there are just some things you don't have to pray about. You just do it. The silence is deafening. I'm talking to somebody. You don't need any more words. You don't need a prophecy. You don't need hands laid on you. You need to just do it. Life isn't that hard. I mean, these guys didn't even go to school. I mean, how, how tough can this be? The Lord knows who I am, and he still makes himself available to me today and every day. So I ask God for guidance and for wisdom. Third, Jesus is called Mighty God. He gives courage for life. I love that. Boldness. Our wonderful Lord came to this world to take on our enemies. Psalms 24, 8. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. That reveals that God is a conquering hero, a champion over every foe. He conquered life facing the temptations and tests you face. And by his death and resurrection, he destroyed the power of death by which Satan enslaves man. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2. That through his death, Jesus' death, he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know, once Jesus came back from the dead, they watched him die. They knew he was dead. But when he came back, they still weren't sure. And he said, okay, I had the bandages removed. Check my scars. Put your hand in the hole in my side, Thomas, doubting Thomas. That's where we get that expression from. Look at the nail piercings in my hand. It is me. Touch me. Smell me. If you same aftershave, smell me. I mean, it, today it'd be like that. You'd know who it was. And they said, it's the Lord. And he says, now you don't have to be afraid to die. Even if God doesn't heal you of stage four can, we'll pray and believe. And we've watched God do a few miracles, but not everybody lives. It is appointed unto man wants to die, so the mortality rate in our world is still 100%. So you can eat your barley green and kale, and you can do all that, but you're still going to die. You get, listen, you got a higher chance of dying getting out of this parking lot after a service than you do from fatty food. So I'm trying to say to you, he said, you don't have to be afraid. And those guys went out bold. They were crucified. They were upside down, fed the lions, cut by the sword, burned alive. And they spit in the face of the ad. They didn't care. It didn't have any fear over them at all. And God wants to eliminate that fear and bondage from us about death. It's just a transition. Nothing to worry about. Jesus conquered death, and he left its crown and scepter shattered in an empty tomb. And he broke down its gates so we never have to fear death's sting. And every good friend I've lost, I'll see again. And we'll, I, 
I always want all my Baptist friends, I can't wait till the marriage supper of the Lamb. And they, I'm thinking of three particularly in town, they're going to look up and say, this ain't grape juice. (laughs) I can't wait for that. Because I want, I want to say I told you so, but I won't. I'll be, I'll be absolutely perfect, so I won't. You know, hit. <laughs> folks, here's the truth. In, in American Christianity, you have to kind of dumb down a little bit. It, the, it, ask George over here. He's a great apologist. I mean, it's like almost nobody thinks. It's just like we just sit around and let people tell us all kind of nonsense and nobody reads the Bible, so nobody can, can say, that's nonsense. That's crazy. My grandmother was a great theologian. She's a beautiful lady. <laughs> Grandma told me if I drank milk and ate fish, it would poison me. <laughs> now, Grandma's in heaven, but Grandma wasn't right. And then she told me the changing seasons. This is back when I'm just a little kid, and she's raising me in high school, and she told me it snowed one day. And she said, the changing, yes, son, the changing seasons. This is pretty soon the end of the world. <laughs> and we still got people thinking that today. And that's been 50, 60 years ago like that. Grandma's theology wasn't good. She loved Jesus, but Grandma was not well taught in her theology. And just to prove her wrong, I ate some fish and drank some milk, and everything was okay. So I didn't die. So Jesus' victory is ours to claim in our daily walk. The enemy can't reach me as I stand in the center of Christ's power and authority, and he can't do it without God's permission. Even Job could not be touched until God gave permission to the enemy to touch him. And he said, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. That means you can live very boldly, folks. The enemy can put a mark on you, can hurt you, can delay you, can distract you, but he can't take you out until God gives him permission. That's confidence. Be bold about it. Number four, Jesus is also called everlasting father. He gives tender care, loving care. Jesus, the son of God, came to reveal the father. There was no reference to God as a father in the Old Testament because it takes a son to reveal a father. When Jesus spoke of God as a father, it was in the best sense of the word. Now today, unfortunately in this country, we find a lot of fathers who are abusive, neglectful, unloving, and irresponsible. However, the everlasting father's attention to me is limitless, watching over his child with loving provision and concern. This is the true daddy. He's the protector. He's the provider. He's loving. I, can, I don't know if I'll get in trouble saying this, but that's the way it goes. I remember back when Princess Diana, remember her? Okay, if you can just look past a lot of the drama that went on in the life. Let me tell you, she came up out of a rigid British family. Don't touch, don't hold, don't kiss, don't hug. And when the owner of Herod's entertained her with his son, that Middle Eastern family was loving kissed the son. It was a father, uh, a father image that she had never seen before and felt love like she had never felt before. That stiff upper lip was the nonsense. Daddies are supposed to hug, give your son a kiss on the cheek. You hug your daughter, uh, squeeze them real tight. Uh, The daddy stuff. And some of us never grew up with that. I didn't have it. Didn't have a father in the home. And I bet many of you had the same thing. Well, don't pass that on to your kids. 
you know, be a hugger and kisser. I don't care if they're 42. You're going to get a hug and a kiss from me, a hug to my son-in-law. And I even have a few men in here I love dearly would give you a kiss and wouldn't even think about it. I do. I mean, I just, I've been with some other guys that were a little older and wiser, and it was a pleasure. It was a term of honor, and respect, and, and, and intimacy to, to do that. A big old hug. Some of you say, oh, my God, I couldn't do that. Well, see, you didn't get the right kind of a, a parent. So we got this from our father. He, he says, if you being evil, Luke 11, if you being evil, talking about all of us, and you know how to bless your kids, give good gifts to them, how much more shall your heavenly father do for you? So you've got to get out of this idea that we, psychologists say we get our image of God from our father in the natural. That's a, that's, that could be a bad thing if you came out of a broken home or with an abusive father. He is not abusive. He is not one. He is more like the prodigal son's daddy. He says he's numbered the hairs on your head. And Philip, that's getting easier for you every day. <laughs> he will stop if just one of his children touches the hem of his garment in faith. Augustine wrote this. I love it. He loves us, everyone, as though there were but one of us to love. Wow. Jesus wanted us to know the Father was not impersonal, imposing some ritualistic dead religion. God as Father implies a loving, intimate relationship. So you should not be cowering, fearful slaves. You should behave instead like God's very own children, adopted into his family, calling him Daddy, Daddy. Wow. Now, you know, when I went to church, we were always supposed to, I don't know if I can get down and get up. But we were, we were supposed, these pants are tight. I can't get out here. The last thing I need to do is rip them, I, I think. So we were sort of just kind of crawling to God, you know, like worms. He says, no, you don't do that. You got kids. They bust in the door. They come in your office no matter what you're doing. Daddy, Daddy, I need $20. They don't get an appointment with the secretary. They don't address you. Oh, thou, my father, who part of his hair on the left side, yea, who has been my dad for 21 years, give me some money. They just come in because it's relationship. And he says, because I'm a, I'm a Christian, I've got Jesus in my heart. I can come to God, not with fear, but saying, Daddy, Daddy. I got a date tonight, and I need some money. Ah, <laughs> oh, some of you are so stiff. You are so stiff. I don't care. I don't know. Luke 15, prodigal son. It's more about the father than it is the wayward son. He was generous. He exercised tough love. He was honest in business. He was watchful and waited patiently for his child. He was openly emotional and loving. He understood without having to be told what's going on in the son's heart. He was eager to forgive and restore, not to hold it over the son. And he knew how to party and celebrate when that son came home. And it, it was like, what a wonderful dad. Everybody in the village was amazed. And yet the God of the universe is our father. And those were characteristics of him to us. And last, Jesus is also named Prince of peace. Anybody need a little peace? You know, when our last dog died and the kids all left the house, it was peaceful. <laughs> but a couple of months ago, Cindy 
let somebody entice her to get another dog. And we haven't had any peace in that house since that dog, Lily, came home. I was just sorry. It just sort of came out of me. I was just thinking of that about peace. It's life interrupted. So God gives calmness in life storms. He's the embodiment of peace. And the Old Testament word for peace is shalom. It's more than the absence of hostility. It means the abundant provision of everything you need in life. Peace is not silence, death, or innocence like a baby asleep. Rather, peace is the wonderful sense of calmness and well-being that fills my life no matter how loud, how difficult or confusing things around me at the moment may be. But to have that peace, I've got to sign a treaty of surrender. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I get a double bonus. I have peace with God. He's not mad at me because my iniquities have been paid for by His Son. And I have now, personally, the peace of God. In a crisis, in a storm, I can just sit and be calm for a moment knowing, I got your back. I'm with you. Yeah, it's a bad day. Count it all joy, not because it's fun, but because I'm in this with you, and I'll see you through it with you. There's a peace about that. Folks, the influence of the Prince of Peace can grow as you allow Jesus to govern more and more of your life. The more you struggle to maintain control on your own, the less peace you get in your heart. When we trust God, His peace stands guard over my life. Listen to Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on me. Wow. During this Christmas season, hectic, rushing, some of you haven't done your shopping yet. That'll be, it's, it can get, and relatives and people can get really, really hectic. Let me invite you to embrace the one who, when you're at your lowest point, says, come to me. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you'll fear no evil. I'll be with you. You know, his shoulders are not only big enough to carry the government of the universe, but every one of your burdens and mine. If life has lost its mystery and wonder, look to the one who is wonderful. If you don't know what to do next in life in a situation, reach out to your counselor. If you have no earthly parent or if you've experienced abuse and mistreatment, place your pain in the arms of the everlasting Father who loves you without limit. If your God is too small, rise up and meet the one who is called Mighty God. He can open the Red Sea, make the sun stand still, back it up 10 degrees, make a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man have a baby. Wow. So there's nothing He can't do to look after you. And if your life is torn up with strife and turmoil, rest in the one who is called Prince of Peace. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.